Welcome to the Andy Social Podcast. My name is Andy Dowling, and here we are, guys. Episode 100. Yes, 100. Who would have thought, hey, I could get all teary and look back and individually talk about every single episode from the first crappy, horrible intro. You can go and listen to that one. Please don't. Right up till now, but uh, I'll spare you all the pain. Please go back and listen to the previous episodes. They're all on uh, Apple Podcasts and all and all the Android podcast players. I don't, don't know what they are. Apple, Google Play, who knows, whatever. They're out there in andysocial.net, so you can go and listen to all the previous episodes. But here we are, episode 100, amazing. This week's guest is with, I would class as an old friend, because we haven't spoken for a long time, and we've known, known each other for quite a few years now. Johnny D from Doro. Uh, first met Johnny, whoa, actually, good question, 12 years ago, maybe, um, in Germany. And uh, that was towards, that was the dungeon tour that we did with Megadeth. And anyway, we, uh, we met up at the Bang Your Head Festival. Doro was playing there. Uh, Tim from our band had already known the Doro uh, crew from previous tours. Dora had come to Australia, so there was a bit of a relationship there. And uh, I got to meet Johnny for the first time, and I uh, remember uh, trading some Borat uh, references backwards and forwards, and uh, and then that was it. And uh, it wasn't until a few years later that uh, Doro, ourselves, and uh, Jaded Heart from Germany got together and did a series of shows throughout Japan, and that was really, really cool. That was back in, I believe, 2010. So that's going on a few years now. But uh, ever since then, we've kept in contact and and Johnny's uh, always uh, watching, I guess, antics from Mark and myself with our Mork and Andy stuff. We sent uh, the guys over some T-shirts, which they wear, and um, and we keep in relative contact. But um, I thought, you know what? Why not? Let's have a chat. And uh, Johnny's been on my radar for a bit for this podcast, and I thought, you know what? Episode 100, this is the guy. So if you don't know Johnny, Johnny has a career that spans over three decades. He's played in a number of different bands over the years. Doro's been his mainstay for almost, or getting on, 25 years. And uh, prior to that, uh, probably most notably with the band Britney Fox, which were huge uh, back in the late 80s. And uh, we cover a lot of this in our chat. We talk about heaps of different things. I did a little bit of a This Is Your Life with Johnny. I tried not to, but then I just got stuck into the into the timeline of events. And I was just so fascinated with what, uh, what Johnny was telling me. So I just sort of stuck on that path. And we went through a little bit of, uh, yeah, that uh, cheesy This Is Your Life uh, with a chronological series of events there. But uh, this is really, really cool. A, a great insight. There's a lot of stories that I didn't know about. Uh, and Johnny was, be, was able to give some really cool insights as to, I guess, how things were um, several decades ago or a couple of decades ago. I shouldn't make Johnny sound that old. <laughs> Sorry, Johnny. And um, and then I guess where things are now and, and what he's involved with now. And it's just really, really cool to see somebody really just sticking to something that they love. And while it can get rough at times and it gets, you know, challenging and the industry being music and the entertainment industry can change and it uh, at times can be yeah very challenging uh johnny's just stuck at it and always uh, taken advantage of opportunities as they've come as he explains and um it's really really cool it's inspiring to to know that there's people out there that uh that just keep making it happen and don't succumb to i guess the mundane everyday life that uh, many of us uh, sometimes get trapped into so 
listen to this, enjoy it, um, take some notes as well, especially for a lot of you guys. I know there's a few young guys that uh, play in bands and they're new to the the whole music world. Uh, definitely get some uh, get some pen and paper out and take some notes here because there's some really, really cool insights and some great uh, lessons to be learned, even though the industry's changed quite a bit over the years. So pay attention. But enough of my rambling. Hooray for episode 100. Please enjoy this episode with Johnny J. Hello. Hello. Hey. Hey, can you hear me? I can. Wow. Good day. Good, good day, mate. <laughs> good evening. Yeah, right? Good whatever the fuck it is. I don't I have no idea. Oh, how's technology, hey? Yeah, right? Pretty <laughs> awesome. Well, it's, uh, you know. It's better than a normal phone call. It's, it sounds pretty damn good. Yeah, there you go. Oh, well, it's only the very best yeah. quality for my podcast. Oh, yeah, dude. How's that going? Good. Yeah, good. I, I've had to work my way up to uh, personalities like yourself, so I've, it's, been a, oh. it's been a long time coming. Oh, boy. I hate to see who you have before me. <laughs> <laughs> Holy crap. Oh. You got a long way to go, buddy. <laughs> well, I, I would assume that it's a bit of a privilege to be speaking to the Andy of Mork and Andy as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I almost was going to wear my T-shirt, but I couldn't find it. So <laughs> That's all right. You're forgiven. <laughs> yeah. How's, uh, how's Philly? Uh, it's going good. The weather's quite nice. It's a little bit of a, you know, a late summer vibe going on. It's been pretty nice and uh, really haven't had much time here to do anything i just got back in town so uh just kind of hanging with the family a bit before i'm off again so yeah because you got another, yeah you got another euro tour in about a month's time yep yeah a little bit of uh doro stuff germany you know not too far spread out but uh we usually do those winter tours almost every year now it's pretty pretty consistent pretty good time for us to get out there and do it you know is that the best so those are always fun is that the best time to tour uh especially in germany around those colder months because there's there's not a great deal of competition yeah i would say that's probably the top reason but uh you know for i can't say for other bands i only know for us um it works out really well you know people are enjoying that time of year you know it's it's a really cool thing the german you know holiday season christmas markets and all that glue vine and the whole yeah it's pretty cool. heavy metal hang you know i remember being i saw that you guys are playing in wolfsburg um on one of the dates and i've mm. been there once a few years ago and it was around the beginning of december it was freezing cold and yeah. i rocked up there on a sunday and I don't know if it's the same across most of Germany, but uh, everything just seems to shut down on a Sunday. And it was, oh, just, yeah. it was just like a wasteland. There was just nothing happening <laughs> at all. I go, oh, my God, does anything happen here? And, right. um, and then when I saw your tour dates and you're playing there, I thought, oh, geez, like where do you guys play there? Because it's just such a small little place. But I guess every little nook and cranny in Germany, you guys have probably played now. Yeah, I think we're, you know, we're big on the, you know, the tent scene and the small 
villages and whatever i mean it's really it's pretty cool because people just you know come out of it's amazing when you see even if you're driving through a small so-called village or whatever and you see some rock posters for a show that might be coming up i mean people literally still just come out of the woodwork for for not only us but you know any rock or metal gig or you know for that matter just get out and and support live music or you know but it is it is kind of funny because we do you know kind of get into every little nook and cranny as you said uh but yeah it works well it's uh it's a good time i think it's uh there's there's definitely a culture difference with well i mean we can focus on germany but a lot of places in europe compared to or at least from my experience here in australia and i'm sure it's the same in north america where a little bit of rain or the weather might be slightly bleak and then people are going, eh, nah, I can't be bothered going yeah. out. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but for, for parts of Europe, I mean, they're just so dedicated to the music that, and they're just used to the weather. That's just not a, it's not a deterrence at all. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it's, you know, thousands of years of, of practice of, you know, just getting out there and getting stuck in it, you know? So I think the modern Germans or whatever don't really seem to give a toss about it, you know. They're as you've seen at Wacken and and the, the outdoor festivals when it's you know middle of summer and pissing down with rain for three days straight, you know. Nobody seems to even bother, you know, or giving a you know giving it a second thought. It's just kind of like it is what it is, and let's let's get down to business. I think um, I think if we had an equivalent in Australia, I think most people would just uh, go home. They just wouldn't be able to put up with it. <laughs> Everyone's just too weak here, and and we're so like lucky with like pretty good weather overall most of the year. We don't get really sort of disgusting weather. I mean, we get it gets pretty hot, but it's still it's still pretty yeah. good. And yeah. um, you know, we're we're pretty good overall. But uh, yeah, anything that's slightly uncomfortable, then we're we're quick to we're quick to whinge about it. Yeah, I'm I'm a pretty pretty big winger myself you know <laughs> i'm not I'm not the biggest uh you know mud swimmer or you know i'm not into even as a as a younger fan or whatever you know i just wasn't brought up with you know outdoor festivals were really not you know they were kind of like just oh you go see someone at a baseball stadium or whatever and it's you know they would even cancel shows if it rained you know so I mean, a lot has changed, but yeah, I wasn't brought up to really withstand those types of elements, you know, and I'm definitely a wimp when it comes to uh, standing outside too long and, you know, getting a chill or whatever. I mean, I'm just like total wimp. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, that's a good segue because you're talking about uh, your younger self. So, uh, yep. I've I went through and did uh, the chronological history of Johnny D, and I thought I won't mm. be uh, I won't be bland and boring and go from day dot to now because I'm sure you've talked about a bunch of different stuff over the years um, on repeat. But one of the things that I found really interesting and I couldn't really see a great deal about it was um, so going right back to the beginning. And yeah. you had, and from what I can see, there's a whole bunch of different bands that you played in over the years. And one of the first bands was World War Three, And then there was a transition yeah. between that and you did a release with them. And I think that was in Philly. And then you went to the UK and played with Wasted for a while. And it was only a short period of time. But that transition from 
growing up and everything being sort of, I guess, you know, in the United States, but being on the East mm-hmm. Coast in Philly, but then suddenly going to the UK, was that the first time you'd ever been overseas at that stage? Uh, no, I, I had been to, my mom was born in Italy, so um, I did visit Italy um, as a kid, but uh, totally different, you know, thing. It was, I wasn't really, uh, I was into music, but I hadn't been playing seriously or anything like that and uh you know my family comes from a a, you know a seaside town on the adriatic coast so it was like more of a holiday vibe you know so when you get a few more years on and all of a sudden you're you know getting very serious about wanting to be a you know a real musician or at least a pro or you know um and you end up in the UK, it's kind of like, holy shit, you know, like, you know, this is where the fucking Beatles and Led Zeppelin. So that was, um, you know, I had only been pretty much to Italy before that. So that wasn't really like any preparation for landing in England and playing with some of my musical heroes, you know, the guys from UFO, which that was a huge band for me. And uh, that whole opportunity was just a mind blower for me at that time you know before all the internet stuff and just really knowing really what was out there you know i mean you could just imagine what it was like for you know uh, for me at that time i was like 21 or something and landing in in heathrow and getting driven to um the whales like way out in north wales out almost on the sea and this just like in the middle of a fucking cow pasture you know a (laughs) sheep field uh you know these guys were renting a house and just like rehearsing in there and and i was like you know blown away by it all but uh it was quite a quite an eye-opener really but it was pretty pretty amazing for that time, you know, like, cause I, like I said, you, I, I didn't really know what to expect or what was out there or where I was really, you know, what was going to happen when I got there. But luckily it all worked out really great. How did, how did you get approached when you're in Philly? Was it, was one of the guys from Wasted over in the United States or was there a mutual friend or something that's directed you to them or to their attention? Yeah. B- yeah. It was both kind of, I had, um, I'd been buying Kerrang! magazine like crazy, you know, and it was like, uh, a bi- I think it was bi-weekly or, or once a month over here. And so I'd run down the local record store and grab this magazine and uh, just, you know, be amazed by all the stuff that was going on uh, in the rock and metal world. And, and especially from that kind of uh, vantage point from the UK, um and not like the typical crap magazines that we had, which only covers sort of like the top of the top, you know, these guys were writing about like everything all the time. And it was really gave you like a a scope of really what was possible. They would do, you know, uh, pieces on bands that basically had like a cassette demo tape or, you know, things that fell into their hands that were worth note. And uh, so I was, reading that religiously and one day i saw um an ad in the front which basically uh, paul chapman was looking for 
a keyboard player, rhythm guitar type uh, position, you know, like Paul Raymond or Neil Carter had done in UFO. And um, I kind of ran to my buddy Jimmy DeLella's place and I said, dude, this is like crazy. Paul Chapman is looking for basically you, you know, you got to go, <laughs> you got to go this gig, man. And he's like, oh, okay. You know, so we checked it out. There was an, an, an address and a phone number. So, you know, we were like, what do, what do we do now? You know, I guess we type up a resume. Like nobody knows what the fuck we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> so, you know, it's like we put all this stuff down and, and I think he mailed it off and actually called Paul called him up and, and he ended up going down there and, uh, and getting the gig, after, you know, to shorten the story a bit. But anyway, he went to England before I did and actually made a record with, with Wasted. And, um, you know, uh, that record, The Good, The Bad, The Wasted, was uh, on Music for Nations. And um, after the record came out, I think they were gearing up for a tour. And Jerry Shirley from Humble Pie Fastway had been... Uh, playing drums with them and on that record and he apparently didn't want to tour um so they were like okay now what and of course my best buddy was like i know the guy you know so he kind of threw the ball back in my court and and uh they trusted him and basically flew me over there like sight unseen just on a recommendation and some photos and like a handwritten resume again <laughs> uh really crazy stuff to look back on it all now but yeah i ended up going over and uh and playing with them and getting the gig it's, it was pretty wild it's 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 so funny now because i mean i've i guess i'm a little bit younger than you but I've I saw pre-internet and obviously we're living into the digital world with the internet just completely controlling everything these days. Yeah. And so I remember going to, you know, leaving home and and telling the parents that I'm I'm going to go and play with some friends down the street or whatever and and if you get stuck somewhere you just have like a few cents or a few coins to put in the payphone to call somebody. You'd never have a phone mm. on you. No one knew where you were. You just had to tell people right. and they would they would just trust you. And when you're telling yep. that about finding an ad in a magazine and then having to work out like handwrite a resume and then a phone right. number. And it's just so like the, the, the further we get into this whole digital age, the more ridiculous all these stories are going to sound in. in I, know, I know. It's just incredible. Totally. That, um, that Because it's not an instantaneous thing. You would have had to send it off and then just sit and wait for. Right. How long for the phone had. to ring, you know, yeah. and, and whatever. Then, and, and then were you guys still living at home at that stage? Yeah, I mean, we were both still living with our parents. And, uh, you know, Jimmy went down there first to Florida and kind of did the whole, holy shit, I'm playing with Paul Chapman from yeah. UFO. And they got to open a few gigs. You know, Paul was cashing in his favors. Uh, you know, they got to open for Ted Nugent and this thing and that one. And, you know, what eventually happened was Paul was uh, working on a solo thing at that time. So he couldn't get a deal. And he went over to England uh, to basically try to, to work some of his better connections over there, uh, trying to shop his 
his solo project, which again could have been done by email, you know, but it had to be like a flight to England and carrying a bunch of cassette tapes over there and, you know, going around door to door and, and banging on, you know, a couple labels or, you know, so he bumps into Pete way and Pete's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm shopping my solo thing. And he's like, we need a guitar player for wasted. So like all this stuff was just kind of happened happening so organically which is you know and even more so for us my my friend and i at that time because we weren't already in the business it wasn't like popping down the pub and running into you know david coverdale or something like that i mean we were literally like nowhere you know and uh so yeah it was it was a, a a great opportunity that that turned out to be such a an amazing learning experience for me you know like cut my teeth with some of the the real pioneers of of rock and metal you know what was so i mean you were with wasted for about a year ish year two years possibly yeah some like i think top to bottom like two years from the joining and and pre-production writing and then recording a record and then doing a doing a whole tour with Maiden and a couple other bands and stuff like that. Pretty much one cycle of like a record's life. It would have been a complete whirlwind of, uh, of a couple of years. Like, uh, especially as you said before, you've, you cut your teeth in that period of time coming from just uh, sort of a local guy in, in Philly and then going over to, to the UK and just getting thrown in the deep end in a way. Oh man. I mean, my first gig was basically a showcase for EMI, um uh steve harris was really championing the band at that point he was such a huge pete way fan and a friend and wanted to help pete kind of get back back up there you know because they had been on an independent and steve was like i'm gonna hook you up with emi and so you know my first gig uh ended up being like the live showcase to seal the deal that you know these guys can actually play and blah 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 but it was at the marquee which is like you know if you go to london at that time and you play the marquee you're like basically have crapped in your trousers pretty heavily you know (laughs) especially being from america never even playing anything larger than like the local dive bar so that was that was unbelievable man and then you know at the end of the gigs harry comes up and dickinson gets up and we do like a couple ufo tunes and it was like sold out thing and just ridiculous it was all just such a cool cool way to like you know kick off a a career in music you know man no pressure no, not at all. But just sort of like, you know, not even just so much adrenaline and and like, you know, that you couldn't even you didn't even have time to, to consider failure or, you know, screwing it up. It was kind of all just going you just had to just on moving. autopilot. Yeah. Yeah. What were what were the big things that you learned in in those two years with them? Because obviously as you said, you've you've gone from one extreme to the other, but was this were there certain things or Think, well, things that you look back now that you, you certainly learned some lessons in that period of time? Absolutely. I think um, one of them was, you know, how to get in a in a room and, and actually, like, create with, with people. And, and, you know, I mean, I had done some writing and 
arranging with a couple of the bands I was with before. But I mean, this was like a real deal, like a band with a budget goes, rents a house in the countryside and goes in there and just like basically works on music 24 seven and then goes into a real studio and makes a record for a major label. So I was learning all that kind of stuff. And um, also the live thing, I think was, um, I mean, Pete, in particular, such a, a maniac on stage, but always very uh, in a in a calculated way. I mean, if you you know at that point, UFO had pretty much done almost everything. You know, stadiums, you know, gig, pub gigs, everything, and they just honed their shit down to a science. And Pete taught us a lot about how to work a crowd. Um, even more so in like a support band situation and, you know, um, just getting out there and really, um, I don't know, just kind of getting people, you know, just really entertaining them from, from the minute you hit the stage till the end, you know, you could see this building of like, from like maybe, uh, uh, you know, this kind of look is like, who the fuck are these guys and who do they think they are to like, holy shit, they're really fucking great. And by the end they're singing and clapping and chanting along. And that whole, I had never experienced the, uh, the European kind of concert audience thing where people are like clapping along, you know, football stadium type chants and, and singing full on, you know, just really, really into this event you know almost like a football game or something like that i mean they're like really going for it so i learned a lot about um that type of you know putting on a show and really not just prancing around and and, and pulling moves and whatnot but really like the you know the thought that went into a set list which songs you know this tempo and this is a great opener that is this you know where we knock them over the head midway and then you know pacing and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. i really did learn a lot about on that and then of course we went out with mate and and that kind of took it all to a new level of you know oh shit now you got it not only entertain an audience as a support band, but you've got to entertain a fucking Iron Maiden crowd, you know? <laughs> and that was like, you know, we did a fucking bang up job at it too, you know? And, um, yeah, I think a lot of people that saw that tour, uh, always remembered, you know, that, oh yeah, the opening band was great, you know? So, it, and that's kind of the old school work ethic. I think I learned, learned that firsthand from those guys some seasoned vets you know is it especially with that tour with maiden i mean you guys would have only had what a 20 minute 30 minute set um i think we yeah probably 30 to 40 maybe okay. 45 at the most yeah. um when we hit hit the states you know yeah that's not too bad i was just thinking yeah i know just from our experience over the years when you do a support support set and it's the same same thing as what you said you really got to be calculated because you're not playing for your your fan base you're playing for somebody else's so you don't wanna, yeah you don't want to stuff them around or waste their time you need to get in there and make sure that you're 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 approaching the set in the right way that's going to keep their attention for that period of time otherwise as soon as they start to drift off that's when uh, 
well, not so much probably these days, but probably uh, years ago, the projectiles would mm-hmm. come out and uh, yeah, yeah, and the, the booze yeah, and the chance the, for the uh, headliner, <laughs> right? Or the uh, you know off to the beer stand kind of thing, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, but you know, even with those short sets, you know, it it almost ups your game a bit and having you you know really cut out the fat, you know. So if you can nail your best tunes and really, you know put them all in that short of a set you you, you know you kind of got your work half cut out for you already so you really just have to uh you know swing and hit it you know instead of miss absolutely absolutely and you would have had a few did you have any absolute train wrecks along the way especially like touring with maiden i mean they're known for being pretty die hard yeah um just in in contrast the maiden thing was just you know it was like they laid it out there for us, you know, and we didn't fuck it up. But on the other side of things, we also did like a eight week tour with status quo in Europe, which was to me, like, I'm thinking like, really, do we want to like, are they even any, like, are they big? You know, like I didn't, <laughs> they weren't ever big in America, you know? Yeah. So I learned, you know, about many, uh, bands that were you know quite huge in in you know in europe and the uk in particular but we went out with them and it was like the mis- mismatch of the century you know it was completely <laughs> talk about diehards but in a completely boneheaded way whereas maiden were like okay those that audience was like fucking entertain us you know the the quo audience was like piss off and this off like immediately because we don't even want to fucking sit through anything you want to fucking say or play. (laughs) So we were up there like, you know, just dying to try and, and work our magic or whatever and get over on this crowd. But, you know, I got to say like 95% of the time it just did not work. So really we had to do this whole tour, uh, literally like, dreading it every night you know so there was like that's when the projectiles came and the you know <laughs> cups full of piss or beer or oh. whatever i mean i i remember a, a gig in belgium i think in particular where you know chapman got hit with one too many uh cups of beer or piss or whatever it might have been and uh he actually had like a um sort of a a pistol but it was like the the barrel was like welded closed it was just kind of a dummy thing you know but he actually went off stage grabbed this gun and pointed it at this dude in the front row <laughs> and and the guy fucking went white man and he literally that was the end of him throwing shit for the night you know but it that was pretty fucking oh, funny, man. Man, you couldn't do that these days, that's for sure. Right. I know, man. <laughs> wow. You'd be locked up like completely within a second. Oh, incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Um so around so it was only a couple of years with them and and the band just disbanded at that stage. They just broke up for what was the main reason for that? Was it just wanting to do other things um, or just not quite gelling? Well, we ended we ended up in LA after the Maiden tour and we had, you know, hopes that we were going to jump on another tour we were on capital and we we had heard rumors that we might get a slot opening for heart or this band or that band and and i was like okay so we're just hanging out there having enjoying the california sun for a few weeks and then 
one day I just get a call or, and it's like, yeah, um, Tonka's fired. And I'm like, uh, what, you know? So they fired Paul for whatever reason. I don't know why, but then from that point, I thought like, why would you fire the, one of the guys with the, you know, the biggest pedigree, you know? Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the thing. And then it became this guitar player search and they wanted a younger guy. And, and then I heard rumors that we were going to lose the deal because the record didn't sell. So it all just started going bonkers. And then that was when I got a call from the Britney guys. Yeah. And um, I'm sure you probably want to wanted to segue into that, but it literally happened at that point. Um, I was in LA wondering if wasted was going to continue and it looked like it wasn't going to uh for those reasons even though pete you know wanted to we did hire a new guitar player and we did do some gigs out there and we were you know going to kind of continue but there was nothing really available you know like the label packed it in on us and uh pete was going to go back to england with this guitar player and try to try to you know get some stuff together and i just wasn't up for it especially because i got a call from those guys and they were like hey man we're getting signed and you know we want you to come play with the band so and i forgetting that call from the britney guys was did mm -hmm. they did they sniff out that things weren't right with with your band or was it just a case that just because you know you guys knew knew of each other or knew each other yeah. that, um, that they just they had an opportunity and then wanted to reach out to you and thought of you it was um it wasn't because they knew anything they literally had asked me maybe i don't know a year previously or six months i forget but when uh when tony destra the original drummer was killed in a car accident um the britney guys uh reached out to me then and this was right mid swing of wasted you know arena tours and all that and i was like you know sorry dudes i yeah. can't can't give this up you know uh, and so they got another friend to take the the position and then when they started to negotiate with um columbia you know maybe a year or like i said eight months or something down the road the one of their stipulations was that uh, they wanted the drummer replaced, you know, which is kind of, you know, sort of happened to a bunch of bands at that stage, which is always really unfortunate and kind of sad. But then you have your mates like sitting there, you know, weighing this option of like, OK, do we kick our friend out or do we like sign a fucking record deal? You know, and it's kind of like never you know it'd be pretty rare if somebody said no we won't take the deal we're just going to continue the way we are so that's what went down they uh they had another opportunity or another reason to uh to switch and call me again so the second time around i i, I didn't pass it up no absolutely and i mean obviously right place right time and yeah yeah and then uh go from there um so as far as comparing, because, I mean, I just remember when we met, or we had met previously, but when we uh, toured together in Japan, oh, jeez, it's like seven odd years ago now. Um, yeah. I remember being in a bus and we we're traveling through Tokyo and we drove past the Tokyo Dome and you made a comment like, oh, yeah, I remember playing there once and we're on a... <laughs> and, 
and we laughed and we we're on our way to the to the venue in Tokyo or whatever or we we're leaving Tokyo to go go somewhere else and um and I just sort of thought and I knew that you'd played in Britney Fox but I just thought really like you played there and then I think you'd mentioned that um I think you did a show there with Bon Jovi and whatnot but I you know over the years I've sort of went back and and listened to a lot of the older stuff and and uh, I've, yeah. got, I've got some of the records now and um and I just didn't realize the popularity of 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 how far or how much popularity Britney Fox was able to get in that period of time, especially when you came on. Cause I think around that stage had they already, well, you just mentioned there, they were about to get signed, but they had stipulations yeah. of, of who was going to be in the band at that stage. So you really came in at a sweet spot for the band. They were, they got this, this deal and yeah. you guys are ready to go. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it was literally fly home to Philly, jump in a rehearsal room, you know, once again, like, okay, check you know can the guy play is he an asshole no okay great <laughs> and then off we go like the studio was booked there was a few um i think we did some local gigs kind of like uh going away type of thing you know and but it, yeah it was amazing timing and uh i think they you know they kind of dug the fact that like you know, they had something to because I remember all the early Britney articles that came out always said like, you know, Johnny D from Wasted and blah, blah, blah. So there was a little bit more for the old uh, publicity, you know, yeah, uh, list, you know. But yeah, it was uh, was pretty. I mean, we did have a, a pretty, you know, pretty good run there for right from the get-go you know it was like out of the gates boom you know it wasn't a lot of uh they had kind of paid some dues you know i wouldn't even say it was a scenario where the band was around for 10 years i mean even from the from the time when they started playing you know day one to the time where they got a deal i mean it really wasn't that long of a process so um they had their shit together you know and i think the label saw that as a you know an an advantage because a lot of bands you know get signed and then it's all this question about okay do we want to keep the name and there are the songs up to par and blah 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 britney fox was pretty much like plug and play um you know like uh even when we hired a producer like they did literally made so few changes in the songs for the first record that you know it was like this is what it is. This is how it is. This is what works. And that's kind of what's going to stay that way, you know? So it would have only been a matter of months between you officially joining the band and then that that self-titled album coming out. It wouldn't have, or at least being recorded anyway. Yeah, it was recorded a few months after I joined and then it was released, you know, maybe under a year later. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we were out gigging again and we landed you know well we actually had a good fan base that was uh really calling and writing all the magazines and you know the one cool thing they did have at that time which was before again before internet stuff was a, a really good underground fan club which had bought like you know tape trading and and buying the demos by mail and and writing magazines and really you know pushing the band out there so once we got signed to a major um you know we really kind of took 
our little fan base and and blew it up you know they really went to work for us you know like the little ant colony that they were <laughs> they were just going for it you know so yeah we uh we were lucky man but we also had you know we had something that was uh right for the time did, did you guys go out and do headline shows straight away or was it something that you jumped on a on a tour with a with another band that was pushing an album yeah we did uh, all of our headline shows pretty much were like East Coast at that time. We yeah. would do runs. The band even did runs up to like Connecticut and Maine and stuff like that before they had actually signed a deal. So um, when we had first signed and had the record in the can, we went out and did some some headline shows, you know, some small theaters and, um, you know, just club stuff. And then we got on MTV and that changed everything. You know, we got, you know, that just lit a, you know, lit a fucking, you know, stick of dynamite off. And that was, that was it. It really kind of blew up at that point. What were the big, what were the big differences? Obviously, you know, you can see that your the band's getting more exposure in, in, in different places. And, and I'm assuming that the, the show opportunities are getting better, but I mean, I I couldn't even begin to imagine what the what the buzz would be around because I think that album ended up going gold. Did it go gold? It did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just shy of platinum, actually. At yeah, that right. time, it went over since. But we, uh, yeah. What was the what What were some of the things that you guys experienced at that stage, and, and is, was it a completely different experience to Wasted? Because obviously, Wasted were doing pretty well over in Europe, but yeah. Um, but I mean, this just seems to be a completely different world altogether. It was because uh, again, we you know, first of all, I think the biggest change was that all of a sudden I was I was like the well known guy in the band. You know <laughs> what I mean? And it wasn't like I was star of the band or the writer or the front man, but it was like okay, this dude's been around, and that's kind of that's cool. But I mean, I also felt like part of. Something I felt like an equal part, and and I was, you know, it was like uh, four guys who basically had no name really. It wasn't like oh, it's Pete Way's band, wasted, you know. It was just it was Britney Fox, and it was all brand new. So I felt different in that sense that I was in a band of my peers. I mean, I grew up with these guys mostly and knew them. We were all from Philly. Um, it was, you know, a little bit of a gang mentality, you know. Um, we obviously had our differences, but all for the common goal. And at that time, when everything was just like, you know, we could almost do no wrong, you know, there was really very few problems or, or you know, disagreements. With, it was just like, okay, this is the next step. And we go, you know, we take that step and here we are. And now we go there and, and it just kind of happened you know what sort of what sort of other acts were you touring with at the time especially going out on the road and doing sort of package tours because i think you guys would have done stuff with <clears throat> poison or um, i'm just trying to think yeah. of, some of the other guys that were doing reasonably well around that around that period of time and towards the late 80s yeah we would we did those few head like that short headline run right before the record dropped and uh we would play with like, um, like say extreme open for us, for example, when we played up in Massachusetts. So it was like, okay, so these guys are like the local, 
you know, they were what we were to Philly. So mm. it was like it made sense for us to kind of like package up on little even one one offs, you know. But then, like I said, uh, MTV video first video Long Way to Love came out. So um, at that point, it was like. Boom, you know, we got on to dial MTV. All of a sudden we had thousands and thousands of actual fans, like almost it seemed overnight, you know, but it really it wasn't that long, but it wasn't overnight, of mm. course. But it, it like that was the impact of MTV. Like you could literally be played on there one day and the next day, like your records all of a sudden like on fire. So that um those plays on MTV got us the poison tour. And, uh, you know, once again, that was another master stroke for us to, to, um, go from playing, you know, small shows to being on a fucking arena tour, you know? So we drove up to like Milwaukee or somewhere in wisconsin and on the way we played like our last little club shows you know headlining and and those were all insane because now we were an mtv band and there was just like insanity in these small you know like 800 capacity clubs or you know pubs small theaters and whatnot and then when we we literally got to wisconsin we were a support band on a fucking arena tour so we were just like you know holy shit like is it you know is this dream gonna end you know and then it that kind of started a whole nother snowball effect so that's kind of how it went that's incredible and um how much touring abroad outside of north america did did the band do was it was the popularity sort of um i, I assume that the u.s would have been sort of the main the main market for you guys but did you guys have an impact in europe especially with you having some pre prior sort of exposure over there we did a little bit i don't know if we really understood to what degree or you know but if you if you look like we looked kind of around at, at our peers and it was almost seemed like like nobody's going over there you mm. know like poison for example would literally they would just they were killing business-wise in america they would just go around and around and around you know and they were building at that time and i don't think anybody really wanted to hey guys i have an idea let's go to europe and like lose money <laughs> to, to try and build it up over there or can we stay here and just like make a billion dollars you know so everybody was a little bit i mean it was kind of like where everybody wanted to be, you know? And uh, I think we did get some, we got some cool exposure because of our Kerrang connection. You know, yeah. we had, those guys were really one of the first to, they, you know, we were one of the first bands to have a cover on Kerrang without actually having a record out. Hmm. So we had like Dave Reynolds and a couple of the guys there really pushing us. And even though they took the piss out of us, like every chance they they could get they still you know we got exposure through them and i think they really enjoyed the, the glamminess of the band you know because those all those 70s glam fans from you know the suite and the slades and the, all the bands that were huge in england you know you had these older cats that were writing for kerrang who were still into that stuff and they were like these guys are great so we did get some 
you know, a lot of feedback from Europe, but we didn't really get to go over there until the second record. Yeah. And we were concentrating on, on America as we, you know, we really kind of needed to, you know. That's it. And I mean, the size of the United States anyway, and the amount of different right. individual markets there. I mean, you could just be touring mm-hmm. there for, for an entire career, as as you said before, with other bands. Like this, for some people, it's there's just no need to look anywhere else because there's just that many that many towns and cities to play in. Yeah, and you don't, you know, there's only so much time in a year mm. or in the cycle of a record where you can really take advantage of that. So I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, the other parts of the world kind of got neglected, you know, and now I think that's probably why there's such a resurgence in all those other places now because you guys got fucked back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> that's it, absolutely. Um, you know? When when did you guys go to Japan? So I'm I'm curious just to hear a little bit about because you mentioned it when we were when we were over there. Yeah. But um doing doing Tokyo Dome, which is pretty iconic, was that a, was that a, a one off show? Because was that with Bon Jovi? It was. It was uh the big egg show, the um big New Year's Eve uh thing they do so it was a sony heat beat event or so i mean it was fucking massive i mean you know tokyo dome fifty thousand people indoors um and you know we were on sony so mm. <laughs> it was like a no-brainer like which one of our bands from america is doing good okay let's get them on here so it was <laughs> us it was us kingdom come rat and bon jovi wow. and it was a huge you know new year's eve gig and and you know this this show was literally like the fucking super bowl i mean i never experienced anything like it in my life you know how japan goes for it and everything they do and they certainly you know held nothing back at that time and we were lucky enough to go over um you know it was an amazing opportunity and it was also a little bit mind-boggling because we went literally over there for a week we played we did press for a week we played uh the tokyo dome gig and then that was it we went back home and like rat and bon jovi went off and did like four six eight other shows in japan and we were like hey what about us you know <laughs> so to this day i never understood and we literally never fucking went back we played the biggest show in japan that year and we never went back again to play any headline shows so i don't know if that was a label thing if it was a a fucking management cock up or if we just sucked so bad that nobody (laughs) wanted us back i really don't fucking know but that will haunt me forever but you know that if you're gonna go to japan once in your life and fucking play a gig that was the most awesome fucking gig that could have ever been Played, you know yeah i think there's very few people that could that could top that one so i think you're uh, i think you've done done reasonably well <laughs> with that. yeah and i did go back only you know got to spend it with you guys and with doro and <laughs> just you know then i could like point out the window and go yeah i fucking played there dude <laughs> I think um yeah we were playing that venue in um, in Tokyo and it was just uh it was it was a it was a slight contrast to uh to the big Tokyo dome so and many years had passed uh, since then as well so it was a uh, yeah I've always remembered that over the years and um and then you making that comment and I thought oh I've, I've got to pick your brain about that later on down the track yeah yeah, yeah it was good man <laughs> I mean it was it was insane 
it was you can imagine what uh, at that time that was like the the last day of of 1988 you know into 89 so i mean bon jovi were fucking absolutely the most massive of massive you know yeah and to uh to play that that kind of gig with them was uh was pretty cool you know we just thought like wow you know like this this could never end like this is just the beginning you know it's pretty crazy and you mentioned before about how much mtv was dictating you know the popularity of bands were they pretty much the the reason why they destroyed a lot of bands as well just with the shift in in taste and picking up um you know different genres of music being grunge at the time and whatever and we're flicking through a few more years but um yeah just just what you said before made me sort of think oh well if they help bands to that extent then they can obviously you know make them go yeah. away very quickly as well yeah i don't know that it was a conscious thing i mean it was just kind of a, a product of the you know the the medium or the time you know it was just basically like they just kept rolling with whatever was good and then you know maybe one day it was like oh bon jovi has a black and white video you know and it's like oh that's that's fucking awesome maybe like we should go in that direction so i remember that the before they actually started killing off the 80s bands they started to kind of like funnel them down this like commercial you know cattle shoot kind of thing and it was like okay now now you have to have a fucking black and white video with a concept and it's got to be this and it's got to be that or we're not playing it so it just it, then it, we really realized that like fuck you know we got to play play along with this you know bullshit game somehow and then you start like second guessing yourself or doing things for other reasons besides what you think is cool or what your fans think is is awesome and and that's when we you know we started to dress down we started to you know write a little differently i know dean felt the pressure big time as far as like you know not to sing all screechy anymore and to write songs that were going to get on the radio and though we were always like fuck it dude you know acdc's done it for fucking their whole career like we don't have to change man we can keep doing what we do but you know it's that's when the whole thing starts to be pulled at you know like cotton candy or some shit everybody wants their you know their say or their opinion and their part and you got to do this and do that next thing you know you're standing there with a fucking paper cone in your hand and there's nothing on it anymore <laughs> yeah i guess i guess at that time like in sort of mid to late 80s where a lot of that sort of uh you know glam rock was massive um i mean a lot of a lot of the bands no doubt would have just had everything at their fingertips like as you said before that whole is this a dream and how long is this going to last and then mm-hmm. when, when the labels turn around and say you know you need to change tweak this change this and whatnot and it's a gradual thing you're more or less just you're blindly accepting that and just going for it because you just i guess it might get to a point where you go i just want to do whatever it takes to not get away from this experience like i want this oh, to continue yeah, yeah so yeah some, i mean that's... and for some bands they had a few more years of of longevity because of it and other bands just just didn't right yeah, yeah i mean there's so many variables when it comes 
down to that thing, you know, and I could sit here and make analogies like probably <laughs> until your, uh, you know, ears burn off. But um, yeah, it really was like, what do we do, you know, and we have to follow this, you know, path or we're not going to get that, uh, you know. If we don't do A, B, and C, we're not going to, you know, be able to really sustain this. And, you know, and then you add to that all the internal pressures and external stuff from other, you know, areas. And then it just became, you know, sort of like, holy shit, you know, like we're really, okay, there's a couple holes in the boat and uh, we don't have enough fingers, you know what I mean? So, you know, now what are we doing? But. Um, I think, you know, and then you have everybody's uh, um, individual opinions of why why it started to sink a bit, you know. But, I mean, our label pulled us off the road. We had a goal record. We were at 800,000 units. You know, we had three videos out. We stalled a bit on our power ballad, you know. Mm-hmm. So the thought was to like come back with a kick-ass rock track and maybe like spark the record and and boot it over platinum or whatever. But you know, label was like, no, no, we got to make another record. And so you know, we were like we were saying earlier, we were following instead of leading, and then it just kind of became like you know, what the hell? Yeah, couldn't really do anything about it anymore. Well. When it got to that point where everyone sort of went their separate ways, um, and I'm just trying to, I'm trying to segue, not being as disjointed as possible. But um, yeah, so it got to the point where, and this is like early '90s, where everyone sort mm-hmm. of went their separate ways, and then you got the opportunity to obviously go over to Doro, and you had somebody. Yep. Oh well, no, there's some. There's another band in between. I think it was. Um, oh, There was a band called, yeah, Mariah, which was really like, you know, there's been quite a bit made of that, you know, but it was really just kind of a, I don't know, a a stepping stone off, you know, I literally left the last Britney gig and went to Minneapolis just to kind of jump onto that thing to help my buddies out and, and see what, you know, kind of take a look and see if I could fit into a real AOR kind of super commercial band like that, you know, and it was like the timing for those guys couldn't have been worse because they were, (laughs) you know, they were really writing some amazing songs, which would have been fucking killer, like, you know, five years previous. But, you know, next thing you know, it was like Nirvana, you know, uh, ground zero. And and that was kind of, that was that, that, you know, so... But you got an inroad to Doro through one of those guys? I did. The same guy as the Wasted thing was yeah. Jimmy Delella, you know. And Jimmy had gotten the Mariah gig through, actually through John Bon Jovi and Snakes, Sabo from Skid Row, you know. They were all buds. And John said, I've been writing with this band, you know. I met them up in Minneapolis and uh, I think you'd be a good fit for them. So why don't you go up there and, you know, do your thing and see where it goes. So Jimmy, you know, pretty much was like, well, hell yeah, you know, if you're behind it, I'm in, you know. Yeah. So he went up there and, and ended up fucking playing the bar scene, and John just was like, see ya, bye, <laughs> and never never did anything, because he probably felt like, well, shit, I'm not going to 
what am I going to do with a band that, you know, uh, is super commercial when the whole industry is blowing up? So uh, both Jimmy and I uh, did that, you know, as long as possible. And then he actually landed the Doro gig back at home before I did. Doro was in America auditioning some players and, you know, uh, he got the gig playing keys and guitar and almost really weird, man. It was almost just like the wasted thing. Like he went and did it before I did. And, you know, he came back home and he was like, yeah, dude, you know, there might be a drum position opening up. And I was like, really? And that, that'd be fucking awesome, you know? And then it actually happened, you know? So it was, um, it was pretty wild, you know, that this guy that I pretty much grew up with ended up having such a hand in, you know, the two of the major gigs that I've had in my life, you know. That's crazy. And when yeah. when you went over and started doing shows with Doro, um, mm-hmm. what was the was that another contrast altogether? You got a you got a, a front woman in the band, so this is the first yeah. time. German as well, and mm-hmm. so. Is, was there culture things to consider? Not so much personally with with Dora herself, but yeah. I guess just being a band that's that's more or less got their roots in Germany and in Europe as far as you know their approach and the way that they do things. Was there a lot of differences that you had to get used to when when you did join? Um, it wasn't too bad. I mean, at that time, the funny thing was was that um, she still had like a hold on her thing, like she. You know, she was sort of modeled in the in the U.S. kind of business-wise thing. You know, she had actually moved to Manhattan for a while, and she had, a, you know, the polygram thing going on, and a manager that was like pretty much international. So I didn't, I didn't feel so much like, oh God, now I'm stuck in Germany with some, you know, some band, or you know, it was all maybe the language barrier at times but she spoke perfect english the manager did everybody around there was like you know we were still sort of in this protective bubble so and you know there was still money flowing and there was like gigs were full and so i literally went from like what the hell is going on in america with this style of music that i'm in and that i love and now it seems to be over and my career's finished to going over there and being like Oh, wait, no, I'm not, you know, like there's still shit going on over here. These people still like this stuff. They don't really care as much about what's going on trend wise. You know, they were a little, you know, a little behind in a good way. So, um, I felt real comfortable, you know, and she's an absolute sweetheart and just, you know, real super dedicated. And I kind of like, you know, just jumped in and did it and then, on stage realized like holy shit man like this chick has a has a thing going on with with her fans like i i don't know if i've really experienced this before you know she's like she's got this bond you know and they're fucking out there crying and stuff and i'm like what the hell is you know like i didn't (laughs) i never i didn't know what the hell that was you know i was just used to going out there and slamming shit and banging my head and you know i learned a lot from her as well she'd be like no you know this is like this is a sensitive ballad like you can't fucking smash symbols in the middle of the <laughs> you know 
And I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you mean. So I learned. Don't wreck the vibe. I learned, right. I learned a lot of, uh, you know, not only how to play with a, you know, a female front or like a, you know, a, a solo artist or, you know, a chick that can go from full on double bass, heavy metal to like a, a sensitive ballad that will bring tears to your eyes kind of thing. So, you know, again, boom, learning, you know, learning opportunity here and, uh, really kind of i dug that you know and it was like a good thing for me to you know once again step in shit and be real lucky but also to um you know to further myself and to be away from that uh the fire that was you know the glam scene or whatever the 80s rock scene in america that was like burning as i flew to germany <laughs> just getting away from getting away from it was um yeah when you i mean i don't know how long down the track it was when you were playing with mm -hmm. doro but could you see this as like a long-term thing for that band like i know with the previous bands that you'd been in you're sort of in the moment and you're just taking advantage yeah. of whatever's in front of you but was there a, like even from doro was there a mm -hmm. was there a feeling that this is this is just what it is and this is what it's always going to be or this is going to be a long-term thing that we we just keep working at and could you see yourself being there for a long period of time or were you just sort of was it more of a case of later on down the track 10 years down the track you turn around and went oh shit i'm still here and now right. being 20, yeah. 25 odd years later on, you're still, <laughs> you're still doing that. Oh, totally, man. I mean, I don't think I, you know, one fault of mine is I don't really like, I've never been like a plan guy, you know, yeah. I kind of like lucked out and got into this shit, you know, almost not by not trying, but it was like, holy fuck, like I'm, I'm in here now. Like, how do I, you know? this is awesome, but how do I keep it going? So once it, it started, it was just like, okay, now I got to keep the momentum going. So it was like, you know, world war three. Okay. Next step wasted. Okay. Next step, Brittany Fox, next Lily pad, you know, don't sink, jump to that thing, you know, and I did get lucky with her and I didn't, I don't think I ever could have even imagined that I would still be doing it, you know, although I did think this has got to have a couple years in it. Oh, this is definitely like she's big over here and she's filling these shows. She's got a record in the charts. Like, this is cool, you know? But then we also didn't work that much. At that time, it was literally like Germany, you know, Switzerland and Austria, and then maybe like two shows in the UK and we were done. Mm. And I was like, okay, great. So um, I did have to also learn how to supplement my year with other gigs yeah. and that's when i kind of started you know doing some little multitasking you know some studio stuff some cover gigs some other little projects and whatnot but yeah i never never even would have thought you know i didn't even know i'd be alive in 25 years let alone <laughs> be still playing with her <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and i think um oh geez i mean we do we do hardly any touring whatsoever and if we go out for more than a week everyone's looking at each other going oh i just i never want to see your face again i just want this is <laughs> this is enough we have got we do not have the tolerance for each other at times but i mean this has been your life for for the majority of your life and 
like even now, and I keep because I've been I've had you on my radar for a while. I go, I've got to speak to Johnny, and then I go, yeah. oh, he's on tour. Oh, I wait until his tour's over, and then I forget about it. And I go, oh shit, he's on another tour. Okay, I wait for the next one, and right. um, and it's just constant. And Dora seems to be touring more than more than ever now, and, and seems to be going really well. But um, I mean, yeah, how do you stop yourself from from killing yourself or being killed on the road? I mean, do you, are you pretty strict with um, your, with your routines? Are you pretty disciplined, or are you just you just lucky? You know, I was for a while, and and I've really like it's. This is again with an an analogy. I look at it like, uh, okay, so you you left the cruise ship, and now you're in a lifeboat. You know, <laughs> and you're kind of weighed down. So you're like, and and that's me. Like I just I've somehow sustained, but also made like huge sacrifices, and I feel like I keep tossing everything out of the boat you know that's that's literally possible and now i end up with like one fucking oar but i'm still in this gig and i'm still fucking doing it you know so (laughs) it it hasn't been easy and i i gotta say with doro like the beginning was really great and everything was like just moving and then there was like this super lull like when she was doing the love me in black album i think that took like three years in between, you know, the last gigs we did to the time that that record was finished and came out. So, you know, I had to, like I said, go go kind of learn how to, to multitask a bit more and, and network and get myself working and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, I guess I, I really think it, it, it changed dramatically, like... It was like this middle ground and then at this and and now on this end of it, like we really we have a band that we all really get along like the four guys in the band, you know, as you witness when we toured together, like we were all, you know, 20 of us in a fucking van together, all kind of laughing and just getting along and having a good time. And it's literally I think those are the things that really keep you from wanting to stick somebody in the neck with a sharp object, you know, (laughs) um, just being around people that you're cool with, you know, I've been in bands and, you know, I can say, honestly, the Britney thing was never one where it was like, Hey, you four guys want to all go out to eat together. Like it was always, it was always an odd man out or somebody fucking bitching about something, you know, and, and, like now we all kind of know our role, you know, it's like her, you know, and she's cool with all of us and we get along great and we hang out sometimes, but n- normally it's like the four guys in the band and we just really kind of get along that well, you know, that we hang out when we can and, and it makes touring that much easier. And so I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a combination of things, you know, you have to be blessed with some people that you really don't mind being around too long, you know? And, uh, yeah, I mean, that makes it so much easier. You know, I don't know that I could have been in this band for almost 25 years. If, if a Dora wasn't like one of the coolest people, you know, in the music business and B that, you know, there's guys in the band that, you know, I spend the most time with that are actually like my brothers, you know? So it's, uh, I'm pretty fortunate in that sense. I think, um, obviously Nick and yourself have been in there for, for years and 
Nick's been in there a little bit longer than you, and then you've mm-hmm. got Bass and, and Luke have been in there for, well, getting closer to, to 10 years in the band. Yeah, I think, like, Luke is 10, and Boz might be, like, 7 or 8 or something. Yeah, so you're pretty, you're pretty solid as far as um, time together now, and I know you guys have had a few different people over the years as well, but mm-hmm. uh, it seems to be pretty, pretty stable and solid. Yep. Yeah, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it is. Um, one last thing. I've got two, actually mm-hmm. two, two things before I wrap up because I'm looking at the time. Um, yeah. I read somewhere, and I never knew this, and I don't know whether it, there's any truth to it. Were you acting as a tour manager at one point for North American tours for the band? I do, yeah. Are you I've still done doing like it? the. Yeah, I do, yeah. I do. I've done like the past five tours or something like that, and it just kind of started as, you know, really trying to keep the budget down, you yeah. know, we couldn't bring our German crew over. So we, you know, it was like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't even remember if I volunteered myself or <laughs> Doro kind of noticed that, you know, I kind of run around kind of doing that stuff anyway or whatever. And, and that just kind of ended up being my other hat, you know? <laughs> so, you know, which is cool. I don't mind doing it. It does run into, you know, when it starts to affect the musical side of things, you know, it can get a little crazy. But typically um, it works. And, and most importantly, like she likes when I do it. So, you know, it's that's kind of why it's it stayed ongoing. Oh, man, I just, um, I mean, we're, we're a pretty DIY band, so I just... Um... I think I'm in a similar position to you where I've just, um, I think mm. it's just not so much that anybody's put up their hand or, or said, you know, you do this. It's just, well, Andy's doing all this, so he may as well just have that title and just keep doing what he's doing. And, um, yeah, but cool. I, I see, um, I see that balance, that difficulty to balance between all the running around and coordinating everything and, um, yep. getting on stage and actually playing the show and, and getting ready to, to do that side of things like be, be the performer, be the musician on stage, as well as that, mm-hmm. wearing that other hat as well. So, and I think, um, I mean, we're doing doing that on a relatively small scale in comparison. But um, I can I can only begin to imagine some of the challenges that you might have day to day when you're when you're trekking around the the North American market. Yeah, it's 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 definitely you know it, you know uh, when you're touring on a budget and you're also covering those kinds of miles and stuff like that, it can be pretty pretty taxing on you you know but it's cool if you can afford like a bus like we've done a couple short runs in a van or we you know we'll, this last thing we did these warlock uh yeah uh, triumph and agony shows we actually flew every show so it was like show fly show fly show fly and not that the flights were long i mean uh, they were geez you know literally you know an hour or two or three at the most but uh um, if you have a, you know, bus tours are great cause you can always like sneak away and cop a little power nap or something like that. But man, if you're just like out from the you know, minute you stand up till the end of the gig and then, you know, Oh, uh, I got to get paid. I got to do this. I got to make sure the fans, you know, meet and greet as she's signing, uh, you know, running around, but, uh, it's, yeah. And definitely wear you down, but um, oh, and then you got to yeah, then somehow. you got to deal with TSA the the next day. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> well, luckily, that's when it 
It, that's when I'm like, yes, we're in America, man. You know, I've got global entry. Yes, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm good to go. And then the rest of the bands back there, help me. What happened? You know, but oh, I love it. No, I, was, yeah. um, I saw that mentioned somewhere. And I thought, oh, that's really fascinating because um, I wasn't aware that you were. Um, sort of wore that other hat as well at times and um and i'm i'm fascinated with a lot of um a lot of bands that are i guess multi-skilled and and whether they've been forced to do so or, or not but i think it's i think yeah. it's, it's really interesting that some um, people have got to a point now where they can do a multitude of different things and it's not just a case of you know I wait till my cue and then I, and I jump on the stage and, and play the set and then I go off somewhere else and yeah i mean it's yeah it's it's good and bad i mean it's like you know i mean i think if if bands would have thought you know more diy you know 30 years ago or more you know they maybe wouldn't have you know gone broke and whatnot or or saw a little bit more of what was kind of being done to them you know business wise and stuff but i mean it's just again a product of the times back then who the fuck wanted to tour manage, man? There was just too much, you know, stuff to enjoy to be, you know, to be worrying about any of that stuff. So, you know, now it's kind of like everybody's sober, everybody's all business counting their pennies and whatnot. <laughs> and, you know, so it's like you, it's almost like a, a given that you're going to be, you know, putting on more than a, a few hats, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, whatever works. That's it. That's it. Definitely. Um, what's uh, apart from the tour coming up next month through Europe? What's uh, what else is on the cards for you? Um, funny you should ask. Being from down under, I have an in excess tribute band. I was going to ask is, about uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dude. It's so crazy, but it's so fucking fun. I mean, I'm I I really enjoy it a lot, and uh, we're just starting to. It's been like two or three years that my buddy. Um, put this thing together you know and it's finally starting to like pick up a little bit Str- you know strange gig strange band to be in a tribute you know it's not like kiss or something that i grew up on but um i just believe in these guys and i i love the music i mean i was a casual fan mm. and then uh learning like deeper cuts and stuff i'm like holy shit man what a great fucking band what really like great writers great stuff i mean you know just hutchins as a front man you know great unbelievable charisma and voice and and now with the you know the way the cards played out and and him not being here it's like you know tribute bands are on the rise and you know for whatever reason and whatever it is it's like the music is great and i just enjoy playing it and i like the guys that i'm in a band with and uh i think our singer's excellent and so it's it's fun man you know and i'm kind of the guy that's like gig is a gig and as long as i'm having fun and banging the drums i can almost just you know be cool with anything you know yeah. it's like oh yeah another day and i'm i'm playing music that's a good day you know that's but cool. uh, yeah, I think um, it's fun thing. I know that uh, I know that Excess had some success in the in the states, and I hear people like referencing them every once in a while as well. But yeah, I mean they're 
they're gods here in Australia and um, along with a whole bunch of other bands from that era right. here. But right. many of the bands that were huge in Australia around that time, and this is sort of looking at around mid to late 80s, and we had a completely mm-hmm. different scene to what North America did. But a lot of yeah. those bands just did not translate over the pond like any other market. They just did not have any success. Some guys had a bit of success in Germany because the Germans yeah. seemed to be uh, seemed to like anything eclectic and a bit a bit different. But yeah. uh, but anywhere else, most bands just didn't didn't have the success. And there's only there's only a very small number, including in excess and I guess Midnight Oil as well that um, that had a little bit of buzz in in North America. So it's when I saw that you yeah. um, you started playing with this tribute band, I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's uh, yeah. Who would have thought? It's just a weird concept that there'd be a tribute band for an Australian band in North America trekking around right. the place playing. So I thought, that yeah, was, I thought I mean- it was pretty cool. It is cool, but it's it's one of those. It's not your you know your obvious choice yeah. as a tribute, but I think in in that sense we have something a little bit you know because it's not like oh god I got to play another whatever you know what tribute is it going to Nirvana or something like I I don't I think it would be if it was a band that I had uh, grown up on more and had you know, had played the songs a lot or heard them a billion times. I just don't know if it would work for me, but um, some reason this just kind of fell in my lap. And like I said, I'm been real good friends with, uh, with the vocalist Corey Massey for years. And we had always wanted to get back into a band together. And then he threw this thing together and, but it's wild, you know, like, even like you said, none of those bands really, translated in american and the more i like dig into in excess history and learning different songs and whatnot i you know like their first top five hit in america was on like their fourth or fifth record and i mean that shit just does not even compute like in today's you know sort of business or or the longevity of a band like that you could actually have had five albums out and still been going and actually getting bigger and bigger every time you know i really i miss that about it that that you you know bands can't have that sort of building growing period you know where they can really really hone shit in you know that band did not become as great as they were just sitting in a rehearsal room and going one day oh we got a record deal now we're amazing you know it's like they fucking honed that shit over years and making records and playing pubs and and you know and that's that's cool man i really dig the the spirit of that and uh i think that'll always kind of be in inside all of us you know yeah well we had a similar i think we had a similar situation to what a lot of your peers had in north america compared to europe so in Australia, we're so segregated from the rest of the world, and often we're either slow and too, yeah, too slow to pick up on whatever the trend is, or we're just so disconnected from the rest of the world that a lot yeah. of these guys cut their teeth and built success and fame here in Australia, and never really thought about North America and whatnot because it was just too far away, it was too expensive, right? And so yeah. it's like, why? 
why go somewhere else and cop a loss just and cross your fingers that you're going to find some success somewhere when things are pretty pretty good at home and it was only i think later on down the track when you're getting around that time where mm-hmm. some bands started to sniff the opportunity and then started taking that uh, taking that plunge and and some of them yeah reasonably well but um, for a long time there it was like well things are good enough here so we'll just um right we'll just stay in our little our little I was going to use the word whole, but when, the- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, yeah, so it was a similar, I think just when you mentioned the thing before with a lot of the guys in North America, not really thinking about Europe a great deal. It's, it was probably a very mm-hmm. similar thing to, to a lot of the dudes here. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Uh, so you got the, you got the NXS tribute band kick and doing the European tour next month with Doro. Yeah. Um, yeah. I read also, cause Brittany Fox has reunited, about a year or two ago, um, is there a new album being recorded or worked? Well, on? we re- we reunited about two years ago, and that was with uh, basically the our bite down hard lineup minus uh, Michael Kelly Smith. So we had a new guitar player in there, and uh, you know things were looking pretty good. It was like the the best version of that band that we could get up and running at that time, you know. And mm-hmm. I really do feel that you know that there's an outlet for it and there's still people that want to hear you know some of the songs that we were known for and whatnot but unfortunately uh again like i mentioned earlier the personalities and the you know the kind of bullshit end of things didn't really gel and um we had the best intentions and we thought we were going to do a record a few songs were tossed around. We did some cool gigs and then kind of the thing just fell flat on its face again. So at this moment in time, uh, it doesn't exist. And uh, <laughs> it's really, really a shame because we, like I said, we did the Monsters of Rock Cruise. We yeah. did M3 Festival. We did Hair Nation Festival in California. So, you know, um just you know the that band is is its own worst enemy it's just really there's just some for some reason it just doesn't really you know it's not an easy band to get up and and doing things and uh you know that's just been proven again by by it laying down like a tired dog you know so i <laughs> I'm I'm very very sad about that and frustrated but I'm also again happy and fortunate that I have other things to to do and and to you know other outlets and stuff. I'm working on a tribute CD. Um you I mean, as we all know we've lost so many heroes over the last few years and uh I'm trying to put together a little tribute CD of of some of my favorite songs by, you know, some of the classic artists like Bowie and Queen and whatnot. So I'm working on that slowly. Uh, I've got some drum tracks down and I'm going to try and get some guests to play on it. So that might be something to look forward to down the road a little bit and uh, just keeping, keeping busy, you know, with whatever I can. That's it. Who knows what's going to be thrown in your lap. Yeah. Might get another Doro Lord tour of, pan you know <laughs> make that happen well it didn't it didn't work uh, out last time we we spoke a while back and uh went to one of uh one of your henchmen and we didn't get past him so 
Oh God! But uh, that, yeah, that's the way the business that's works. It's a bummer, man. I'm still <laughs> bumming that we didn't get to go. Every time I go to Japan, it's like a curse. Like you will not go back for whatever you know, ten oh, years or something. Come we're on, having, man. We're having troubles getting back there as well, but um, that might be for. A, <sighs> Sorry to hear that. Nah, all good. We'll we'll get there eventually, but that might be a, a conversation for later, and we'll we'll, we'll talk yeah, more. Yeah, man. But, um, Let's work on that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, cool. Thank you so much getting on on, Thank on you, your side man. of the uh of the pond so I'll, I'll let you wind down and uh and do what you need to do but uh, thanks so much for chewing the fat yeah and appreciate it man good to talk to you too Absolutely. And catch up gotta yeah. hear more about your uh your end of the deal soon yeah we'll do we'll do we'll speak soon right. thanks man cool buddy take care all right take care you bye. Too. bye There you go, folks. Episode 100 is in the bag. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. And if you want to reach out to Johnny or check out any of the bands that he's been in, there's been quite a few, and uh, anything that we spoke about in this episode, all the links and resources will be over at andysocial.net in the show notes. Very easy to find. This episode will be on the front page if you're listening uh, this week. Otherwise, if you're listening in the months and years to come, just click on the uh, podcast section and you'll be able to scroll down to episode one. 100, one double zero, amazing. Um, and everything will be in there. I'll try and find some really cool videos from days gone by um, off YouTube and chuck them into the show notes as well. So hopefully I can find some really cool stuff and uh, no doubt you guys will get a kick out of some of the things that Johnny's been involved with over the years and what he is doing now as well. So really, really cool, great chat, awesome guy. You get the picture. So before we wrap up episode 100, I wonder how many times I can say 100. Is anyone counting? 100, 100, 100, 100. Uh, before we wrap up episode 100, there are a few ways that you can support this podcast. If you feel that you would wish to do something more than listening to this episode, and thank you very much because that's all you really need to do. But if you want to do something more, uh, get on social media, all the different platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, I'm even whoring myself out on LinkedIn. Who would have thought? Um, everything's on these social media platforms. Get on there, like, retweet, love heart, uh, comment, tag, you know, all those little things. They go a long way to beat those horrible algorithms of these social media platforms. Um, if you want to do anything more on top of that, we have the Amazon portal over at andysocial.net. So if you shop on Amazon, click on my portal link first on the andysocial.net website, and that will take you through to Amazon and then forget about it. Just keep shopping as per normal. And then in the background, mixed in with all that programming code, I get a little cut of what you're buying. But don't worry, if you're buying anything suspicious, I won't know about it. So don't stress if you're going to buy uh, something a little bit naughty. But anyway, moving along. The last thing is paypal.me. If you want to sling me, sling me, I'm saying it again. If you want to sling me 50 cents or a dollar or whatever it might be, um, you can do so via the paypal.me button over at andysocial.net. So you can go and check that out um, if you feel that you want to give me something. Um, I don't ask for money, but I figured that uh, if the option's there, then people can use that if they feel necessary. But uh, anything that I do get, and I do get a few little uh, little gifts every once in a while, thank you very much. The money that I do get from this podcast just goes to keeping this podcast afloat each month. So hosting fees, gear, 
getting around sometimes as well and chatting to all these different people, um, the money that does come in does help support that and keep it going. So thank you so much for those people that do uh, gift me with little presents of dollars and cents every once in a while. It's very, very cool. But enough of me. That's it. Thank you so much. Episode 100. It's been amazing. This podcast is bigger than ever. It's getting better and better each and every week amazing guests and uh, I've got a hell of a lot coming up. I have so much coming up. It's not funny. So um, a lot of surprises that are in store. I'm going to uh, let you guys know as they come to light and um, lots of cool guests in the pipeline. A lot of people I'm working on. It's a long game here. It's a long-term game. So I've really got to, I've really got to stroke the ego and, and uh, gently warm or have these people warm to me, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Trust me. So lots of cool stuff coming up. Enough of me. All right, guys, next week. Ta-ta. You're ready. You're ready.